We're going to jump right into it this morning. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 23. In this, we are given a list of David's mighty men. The word mighty means manly. It means a champion. The list of these guys, these are, this is a list of manly men, named men in their culture for their their battle, um, what would be the word? Just their uh, prowess. Just so you know, men, not a single one of us line up with the definition of these mighty men in 2 Samuel 23. So if this is the only definition that we have for what a man is, then every single one of us falls short and we can all tuck our tail between our legs in the face of these alpha men, which is not what the Bible conveys at all. But I do want to begin with this question. I want you to define a man. And at the same time, women, we're not going to leave you out either, but define a woman. Our culture in the day in which we live is clearly giving us a lot of definitions that are not found in the Bible. Um, culture for all of time provides many definitions of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and how to excel in that role in the time and the culture that you find yourself in. As we sit in the Old Testament, it is a very specific time it is a very specific culture that is different from ours, and the definitions and those roles of men and women in the culture would take on different nuances, even though the core of God creating us as male and female in his image carries forward through all of history. So I bring up the definition, you know, just the idea of the boys turning 20 yesterday. They're men. They're no longer teenagers. They're now 20 years old. But at what point did they transition from being boys, which being a boy in age, there's nothing wrong with. But if you're my age and you call me a boy, that's very derogatory, right? But there are men who are my age who would be men in a lot of different definitions. But according to the word of God, we would give that derogatory term as boy too. Now, at 20, they're men at 20, but they're, they haven't, they're not 30 yet. They have another decade of life experience that they can't know at 20, but that doesn't mean that they're not men yet. It means as men, as children of God, we progress and we mature as we are sanctified. We gain wisdom, we gain knowledge, we gain experience with the Lord, and we mature as men. So even as if you were to sit down and list out all of your characteristics of what a man is and what a man is not, I guarantee each one of us would fail in some of those definitions. And if you personally didn't fail in your own definition of what a man is or is not, men in this room would fail your definition. There are many within the body of Christ, within our culture, that would say the list of David's mighty men, these are warriors. We are to be warriors for Jesus. We are soldiers. We are engaged in a battle. And the New Testament does use a lot of that battle imagery in regards to spiritual warfare, in regards to following Christ. There are enemies. 
And you can take this very strong masculine tone of, you know, you need to man up and be a soldier for Jesus. And that does fit a segment of men who are absolutely madly in love with the Lord and look to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's all right. But you can't ignore the other side of the, the spectrum of men who aren't all geared up for battle, who aren't hairy and smell like men and belch and fart and do all these things that guys are supposed to do, but they're on the other side. Maybe they're more artistic. Both are men, yes? So when we sit in statistics, if you know what a, a bell curve looks like in statistics, think of a bell, and in the center of that bell, that's where the majority of people fit. But in statistics, there's always outliers. When you talk about your definitions of men, there are going to be definitions that swing to the very masculine side, and there are going to be definitions that swing to the more effeminate side. Both are men, and both can be godly and submitting to the Lord. I don't know if you've ever sat in personality tests and there's a variety of them, but when you sit in a personality test, there's these buckets of definitions to help you define your personality, your character, how you're wired, to help you aim your life in a way where you're going to be successful for how God has created you and wired you and how he's sanctifying you. There are jobs for my personality that I ought not to do because it's not how I'm wired. You don't want me in sales. It's just not how I'm wired. You want me doing accounting, which is what I do. And projects, that's what I do. It's what I'm wired for, it's what I'm geared for, and it's what the Lord causes me to excel in. So, I want you to have in your mind just that definition of what a godly man is, not what our culture defines a man as. The major section of David's mighty men in this chapter, it's, there's, there's two sections, and the second section focuses on that. We're going to be very front heavy in chapter 23. So turn to 2 Samuel 23. And the reason why we're going to spend more of our time in that section is because I think David gives us a very solid and biblical definition of what it means to be a man of God. And in, your, in our spectrum of personalities as men, all of us can fit within this definition in regards to how God has wired us as we submit ourselves to him in faith. So this is 2 Samuel 23. These are defined as the last words of David. Um, David clearly has more words. He doesn't die until early in the chapters of 1 Kings. But this is his last oracle as it's, it's defined. These are the last words that he's speaking to the culture. Um, these would be after all the Psalms that he's written. And here's, here's what David chooses to say in his last words. And there's multiple sections of... of of people who were speaking their last words in the Bible that are, that are pretty cool to sit in, whether it's Moses, Jesus has many sections, Paul has his own. Anyways, here we go. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed one of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. He shall be like light 
like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them he must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. So again, this is, this is very specifically stated that these are David's last words, his last oracle. And he places this title for himself, which is David, the son of Jesse. In, in 1 Samuel, when Saul is speaking about David, he calls him the son of Jesse repeatedly as a derogatory term. David is giving us this title that I am the son of Jesse. One, he's, he's, he's uh, recognizing his father. He's identifying who he is. He's remembering his, his background, but he's placing himself. Here is a singular man, but he gives this definition. I'm the son of Jesse, but I'm a man... And the word there for man is it's, it's the idea is young and strong. So when God called him, he was a teenager. He was, this is before he had a beard. This is when he, God sent Samuel to anoint him as the king of Israel. He was a young man, a strong man, but that God is the one who lifted him up. So we sit in the definition of what it means to be a man, and what it means to be manly, what it means to be mighty in the Lord. The position is 100% founded upon your relationship with God. Because if you have that foundation right, if you have that relationship right, I don't care what your personality is, I don't care how the culture would define you as a man's man or a feminine man, it doesn't matter whatsoever. If you have your eyes on your creator and you were submitted to him and you were founded upon him, you will be successful as a man of God. And this is David's foundation. I'm the son of Jesse. But I'm a man. I was a young, strong man that God lifted up and exalted in the culture. Now, remember, this is at the tail end of what we sat in last week of his incredible song of praise to God, who God is and who God was to David, recognizing that God is the one who has raised me up on high. He says, I am the anointed of the God of Jacob. Again, this is the word for Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word for the Greek word Christ. So David, again, he's imaging to the culture and to us today who Jesus is in this role as the anointed one, as the exalted one, as he who rules in the fear of God. That's what David was to image to us. And we watched his life be successful in many ways in that, in other ways, not so much. But he focuses here on the title that uh, um, he was anointed by the God of Jacob. Jacob, you have Abraham was chosen by God, called out of the nation of Ur, follows God into the land that God promised to him. Abraham has the promised son, Isaac. Isaac has the twin sons, Esau and Jacob, that we may contrast if I remember in a minute. Jacob has 12 sons. 
Those 12 sons represent the nation of Israel. So when he's saying that he was anointed by the God of Jacob, he's saying, I am the one who has been anointed as king by the God of this nation of Israel, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And all the psalms, all the songs that we can sit in this man who had a heart after God, who had an incredible poetic side to him, and had an incredible warrior side to him also. And you get this definition again. This is, none of this is in order, but we're just going to go in order of the text. But he says, this, the spirit of the Lord spoke to me. Again, when you talk about the Holy Spirit of God, this is talking about your relationship with your creator. We are told in the New Testament through faith in Jesus Christ that the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit, the Almighty God, to dwell within us. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us, and he speaks through you to others in a variety of different ways. But as we sit in this definition of what makes a man a man, the New Testament gives us very clear definitions of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if we were to compare, and we're going to compare, New Testament definitions of what it means for an individual to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and the characteristics that flow out of that man and that woman's heart, in contrast to what our culture, or even your household, the home that you grow up in, your friends, your workplace may define a man is. As you said, we're not going to look at all these, but I want you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter uh, 20, Galatians chapter 5. There's multiple sections that we could turn to in the New Testament to study out what the Word of God has to say in regards to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 are awesome section to sit in that description. Chapter 13, focusing on what does it mean to be a man and a woman who loves God and loves other people. Incredible definition of love. Again, our culture would give us definitions of what love is and what love is not. The Bible gives us a very clear definition. In Galatians chapter 5, there is, it's starting in verse 16, Paul is identifying here is the character of a man or a woman who is walking in the Spirit, walking according to the authority of the Spirit of the Lord in their life in contrast to the flesh. Romans chapter 7 and 8 would be another great section to sit in to study this out. But here's what Paul has to say. Galatians 5.16 says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the, lust of the, uh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are they're contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are, and there's a list and we're going to go through this. But I would submit as we're sitting in this definition of what is a mighty man? What does it mean for you to be a godly man? Here's a list of descriptions of boyish characteristics that come out of all of our hearts to one degree or another. There's not a single one of us as a man of God who does not at times demonstrate the immaturity of a boy. But that's not the, the pattern of life that we're to live in. We're to follow after Jesus in all of these things. But listen to 
this list, these evident works of the flesh, and we're going to title it for this section, just these evidence, evident works of boys who ought to be men. Adultery. A man who steps outside of his marriage is not a man, he is a boy. Fornication. A man who does not commit to a singular woman and is pursuing multiple women is a boy. Fornication. Uncleanness. Just general uncleanness, pure, uh, ritually unpure in all of its definition. Lewd. Think of all the immature thoughts and words and behaviors that come out of boyish behaviors and lewdness. I think this one's fascinating. Idolatry. You can be a man grown, but if your God is not the God who created the heavens and the earth... Your life is going to be led down a path of boyish behaviors. There may be a lot of areas of that individual's life that you can define. You're like, here's a solid man. But if you are pursuing idolatry, making up your own God, not digging into the word on your own, following after the commands and the ideas of other men because they're more aggressive and they're more convincing to you and you're submitting your mind to somebody else's uh, passionate definition in regards to who God is that is not founded on the truth of the Bible, many adult men have submitted themselves and their wives and their households to the teaching of boys who are professing to be men of God, and they're not. Sorcery. New Testament word here, this focuses on drugs. So whether you can throw alcohol into this, you can throw pot into this, we have a major push in our culture again for LSD and mushrooms and just all of those head trips and hey, you got your little out of whack in one area of your life, come have a, come do some LSD under the, uh, under the, you know, under the vision or whatever, a psychologist and we'll help fix your brain totally part of our culture today. Again, looking to boyish behaviors, not looking to God for sober-mindedness. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. All right, ladies. Which one of you wants any of those labels over the man that you choose as husband? Would you feel safe? Would you feel love? Would you feel protected? Would you feel like your husband's a man? Or would you say that the, if this was the characteristic of the man that you're married to, that there's some boyish things that need to get worked out? I mean, I'm guilty of all of this stuff. My Christian experience, as I am being exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, was founded on, again, I gave, I gave my heart to the Lord at a family life marriage conference where I was being taught, here is what a man of God looks like. Blake, make a decision. Is Jesus your Lord and Savior, yes or no? And yes. And there's many boyish things that as a 23-year-old, he had to work out of me. I'm now a 47-year-old. 
Yes, I'm a man, but in some ways I still have boyish tendencies in my flesh, things that I have to submit to the Lord. Lori will say amen to that because I was making fun of her age earlier, being her little brother, because sometimes I want to act like a boy and it's fun. She knows how to handle me. She can push back. But in the reality in my relationship with the Lord, Lord, I'm asking that you make me to be a man of God according to your definition, according to how you've wired me, the life context that you've placed me in, that list that we just went through. I don't want any of this stuff in my life. I've tested this stuff. I tasted this stuff. Lord, grow me, mature me, give me the experiences that I need, dig out of my heart that those things that don't belong there, help me to confess those things and to walk forward in the victory that you give me. And the like, the list can go on, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now here's the contrast, here's the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Love. First definition of a man of God is a man who loves God, a man who loves his wife, a man who loves his children, a man who loves his father and mother, a man who loves his culture, who loves his church, who loves those that he work with. The first definition of the fruit of a man who has the Holy Spirit in his life. Your mind and your heart and your mouth and your behavior is on the path of sacrificial love. Ladies, you want a loving husband? What do you think, Trudy? Does the man in pink love you? Real men wear pink. Right? Real men wear pink? Yep. <laughs> I'm a punk. I, I, seriously, this is a, I don't know if I said this at the beginning. I thought it, but I don't know if I said it. This message, it would be much better if we could pull up a table and just sit across from one another and have a conversation. Because here's, here's, the, here's, the, the, here's the experience of my life. Here's who my dad was to me. Here's who my other male role models have been for me. Here's where they were successful. Here's where they failed. Here's what I picked up on. Here's what I've learned in the body of Christ. Here's what I've learned from the word of God. Here's what the culture has taught me. This is a great dialogue of conversation that we need and we do have within this body. Um, Love, joy, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Not an Eeyore kind of attitude, not a happiness that's based upon your circumstances, but in your core, there's this, there's this joy that pours out of your mind and your heart in the life that God has given to you, regardless of the circumstances, the good, the bad, all of it. Man of God, Woman of God, the Spirit is producing a peace in your life that's supernatural. Again, there's all this agitation. There's all these things that cause us anxiety and worry. Definition here, further the Spirit brings about peace in our life, in our soul, in our spirit. Long-suffering. I have failed in patience repetitiously as a man. You go talk to Julie, where, where did Blake really need to grow up in? Patience. 
because I'd, I'd have a short fuse. I'd be instant, instantly irritable sitting in those responsibilities of what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a father, what it means, how do you keep this life in balance and all of that's, its activities. And the insecurities that I had with myself and those circumstances, my flesh would react in irritation. My anger would well up quickly. The Lord is the one who has had to produce a patience in me, a long-suffering, remaining under that pressure in love, in joy, in peace, remaining under, not seeking to get out from of it, but all right, Lord, you've placed me into this context. This is a circumstance that's going on in my flesh. I really want to freak out, but I love you and I trust you and I know that you're here and I know that you're leading me down this path. Long-suffering, remaining under Kindness. When you think of definitions of masculinity, is kindness one of the words that you'd put in that list? God does. Man of God, whether you're big and burly and hairy, or you're short and skinny and smooth-skinned, Bible's definition, kind. Goodness, not an evil heart, not bent on evil, but goodness from the Spirit. Faithfulness. Man of God is trustworthy. May I be trustworthy to my spouse. May my kids find me trustworthy. May you find me trustworthy. May I be faithful to the Lord in all things. And again, the the Spirit has produced this in my life, and he needs to continue to mature me in all of this. Gentleness. Not always swinging around a sword and brute strength, but being gentle. Self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Romans 12, you can turn back to 2 Samuel. Romans 12 would be another great chapter to study in this subject matter. So we get, uh, I'm turning way too far back in my Bible. Back to 2 Samuel 23. So we look at David's definition here. So one, the spirit of the Lord is speaking by him. Again, I think that that is, as you go through those lists and the work of the Holy Spirit and a believer's life, what is being produced, that those are the solid biblical definitions of a man and a woman. His word was on his tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. I really appreciate David's definition because it's just biblically sound. You go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and 4, this idea of dominion and ruling comes up multiple times. In David's definition, he uses the imagery of the sun coming up in the morning, the man who rules 
with justness, with rightness, being upright, the man who rules in the fear of God. He's like the sun that comes up every single morning. The sun, we're told in in Genesis 1, when God created the sun, the sun was to rule over the day, to have dominion over the day, to give man the light of God. The lesser, the, the moon was to rule over the night. So the imagery that David is using in regards to ruling, he's looking back to God's creation. Just as the sun comes up every single day and gives light to men, and you need the sun to produce fruits, right? You need it to produce the crop that God intended. That sun is to be a light to all of mankind. At the same time, the sun can be a devastating thing without water, right? It can bake things. It can kill things. So there's a right mixture that's necessary, and this is the imagery that he's using. But when you have Adam and Eve, as God creates male first, Adam, in the image of God, he looks at Adam, defines everything as good, but it's not good that Adam is alone. So he took out of his side and he created Eve to be comparable. Male and female were to image God to all of God's creation. You sit in Genesis chapter 3 where sin enters in and Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't protecting his wife. Just all the different imagery that goes on in that scene. The consequence of Adam and Eve's disobedience to God says that Eve, you are, I'm going to increase your sorrow and the pain of childbirth, but your desire, your joy, the thing that you're seeking after is going to be your husband, but your husband is going to rule over you. Now, cultures throughout time and even in our time, even within the church, this idea of ruling and having dominion over a husband over the wife has been mistaught and misconveyed and mis, uh, the, the examples of it are, can be horrific in many ways. The idea of ruling biblically is being painted by David and it was painted by God in Genesis and it's the same all the way through Revelation. And that relationship between Adam and Eve and the order that God placed them there, and again, there's, there's a consequence and the sin and the rebellion and the order and structure that God placed there. Not going to get into it because then I'm just going to get myself in a lot of trouble because we don't have enough time to teach at that depth this morning. David's definition here is a man who rules his bride, that ruling is to be What? It's to be just, it's to be right, it's to be gentle, it's to be under the fear of God. In that relationship between husband and wife, for Julie and I, many aspects of our marriage are going to take on what would be identified as a traditional role. But for those of you who know my bride, you know she's a very strong woman. She is a very capable woman. She is somebody that I respect highly. She is somebody's opinion that I seek on everything. But within our household, if you went and talked to her, there are some times where it's we're having the conversation and We are weighing through the pros and cons of the decision that we are making, but she looks to me to lead, to rule in the right direction. In the fear of God, in justice, in righteousness, in that relationship that we have together as husband and wife. I've been successful in my relationship with the Lord in that in many ways. 
I've failed the Lord, and I've failed Julie in that in other ways. But in our marriages, we're working these things out in our household. They're being worked out in submission to the Lord, in submission to each other as husband and wife, in love for one another, in care for one another. We don't have time this morning, but you can go sit in Ephesians chapter 5. has a fantastic definition of that relationship between husband and wife. First uh, Peter chapter 3 has another fantastic definition of what it means, a biblical definition of what it means to be a man of God who loves and cherishes his bride and is not ruling according to some patriarchal uh, cultural abuse of women. He who rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. This imagery, again, this is to unveil the heart of God in regards to the Messiah. It's to unveil the heart of God in regards to government leaders. This can be leaders in the corporate world. This can be leaders in the household. To one degree or another, there are people that you have authority over. Whatever that context may look like. The command for every single one of us in that leading, seek to be a just individual, an upright individual, and in submission to the Lord. And always oh, the foundation is having that fear of the Lord. Understanding that God is your God, He is your head. You have an awe for Him, a reverence, a respect. That if He were to unveil Himself before you right now, you have this recognition, you would be on the dirt in submission before your ruler. The behavior, your thoughts, your words, and your actions, when you are put in a position of dominion in some fashion, it is to be in the fear of the Lord. And here's this description. And David gives the confession in verse 5. My house is not so with God. David's given that confession just as I've given you this confession. I'm not perfect. I'm telling you who I'm seeking after. I'm seeking after my creator. I'm seeking after my savior. I'm seeking to be a man of God to my spouse and to my kids and to you. That's where I'm seeking. That's where I'm aiming. And I tell you, I fail in that. Men fail. And we need to be able to fail. This is where we learn. Okay, I'm not going to do that again. I've figured that out. And sometimes it takes us 20 times to learn. And other times we learn on the first go. My house is not so with the Lord, yet what has God done? He's given me an everlasting covenant. This idea of a covenant where you have David here, here he's an individual man. He's the son of Jesse. He has been anointed and raised up by the God of a nation. And within this nation, God has given an eternal covenant to David of a dynasty. That on the throne of David that God gave forever will be seated a man who is ruling with the authority that God has given. That man is Jesus, the Son of God. God in the flesh, seated at the right hand of God now, and one day he is coming back. That is the everlasting covenant. It is ordered. It is secure. It is for sure. This, this promise that God has given to us in Christ and all that Jesus is, this is all of my salvation. This is all of my desire, my joy, and my delight. Will he not make it increase? Will he not cause it to sprout? Again, in this, I just, I see an incredible definition that's concise, that we can hang a lot of the rest of different passages of the word of God upon of what it means to be a man of God. 
called by God, anointed by God, filled with the spirit of God, focus on his word, ruling under that authority, not being like James and John, the disciples who Jesus, he gave them the nickname, the sons of thunder. You don't give mild-mannered men the nickname, the sons of thunder. These are probably pretty, vi not violent, but vibrant, boisterous men. I think of my own sons always sitting there jabbing one another. But what did they want to do? They wanted to rule. And what did Jesus tell them? Your desire to rule, your desire to have dominion, it's not bad. But what did Jesus tell them to do? He gave them the picture of what ruling looks like. Ruling, it absolutely turns the world upside down. If you want to rule and you want to rule well as a man of God, you seek to be the servant of all because that's the example that our Savior gave to us. In the few minutes we have left, we're going to look at the rest of this chapter. Like I, I told you that we were going to be very front heavy in David's definition because I think as we read through the description of David's mighty men that Yes, these are descriptions of godly men, and they are submitted to the Lord, and we'll get into that in a second. But if this was your only definition of what it means to be a man of God, you could become extremely imbalanced in one definition while ignoring others. Because listen to this list. These are the names. These are men of reputation. These are named men in their culture of the mighty men of uh, whom David had. Again, that word for mighty, it's manly, it's vigorous, it's champion. <clears throat> These are the alpha men of the culture in the day. Number one, <clears throat> excuse me, Josheb Bashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains or chief among the three. He was called Edino the Esnite. Why? Because he had killed 800 men at one time. If that's your definition of a man, again, every single one of us fails. Chronicles tells us that the number is 300 that he killed at one time. But here, this named man, his name means there's the guy who sits in the seat. That's his, that's his name. That's his reputation. Don't know what the seat was. We don't have any other chairs. But, or any other chairs, any other uh, description of him. We don't see any other stories about him. We just have him in this section. Out of David's named men, here's number one. And his name, his nickname, there's the guy that sits in the seat. And he got that name because he was a warrior. One battle, 300 to 800 men, hand-to-hand -hand combat, killed Sat in the Old Testament a lot. Told you that's none of our life experience. But if that's your only definition of a man, gentlemen, how do you line up to that? I'm a, I'm a decent-sized guy. I can move some weight. Can't move the weight that Eugene can. I can't even keep up with my meathead sons. If I'm, if I'm comparing my manhood to physical exploits, it's not the definition of God's word. But here, these are named men in the culture. They have a place in the word of God. And we're going to see why in a minute. After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ohohite. 
one of the three mighty men who was with David when they defied, when they mocked, when they taunted the Philistines who were gathered there for the battle and the men of Israel had retreated. So listen to this. There the men of Israel retreat. This one guy stands up and attacks the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. Very powerful warrior spirit here. The whole culture is running in that direction, and one man picks up one sword and stands in the gap on that day in courage, in boldness, in the Lord, who gave the victory. The man or God? God gave the victory. How many other men picked up a sword on a day of battle when everybody else is fleeing and didn't kill nobody and lost his head? Still the man. But again, it's just we have to be balanced in this. The focus on all of this. These guys, when you sit in 1 Samuel, when they first come and line themselves up with David in the culture, we're told that these are bitter men. These are, which means that they're upset with the leadership. They're upset with the government. They're upset with the culture. They're upset with where they are in life. They're in debt. They're distressed. The definitions, the labels that are over these guys, they're, they're, they're none of the labels that we want over us. They're all those works of the flesh. However, as they align themselves to David and to David's God, we watch them transform over time and preserved in the word of God. Here's men who look to David and his leadership and submitted to his leadership. And not just because David was a leader, because David was some kind of alpha male, but David was in love with God and he was doing what God directed him to do in his time and in his culture. These men were transformed over time through other men's faith, through doing battle together, living life together. And again, like the context of these lives, we don't have any of the testimonies of their wives. We don't have any of the testimony in regards to what their household looked like, how they were successful or unsuccessful as fathers, as neighbors. We don't have any of that. All we have is their military exploits defined for us. I'm saying all that to say is if this chapter is your only definition of what it means to be a man of God, you will be out of balance. Genesis through Revelation gives us the variety of what it means to be a man of God. After him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Har, Har, yeah. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop, and there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself. He took a stand in the middle of the field and defended it and killed the Philistines. So again, the Lord brought about a great victory. Those are the top three named men in their day. Then three, after the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the game of Abdullam. Much earlier on in David's life, and the troop of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines uh, was then in Bethlehem, David's hometown. David says with longing, he's saying it out loud, and, and you know, just with longing, and his hometown is under the control of the enemy, and his heart saying, oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So some three mighty men 
broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Well, that's pretty cool. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out on the ground to the Lord. David, what a jerk. We just brought you this water. He said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. I was just, I was just saying this with longing. These men risked their lives to go give me water. I would, I would dishonor the blood in the veins of those men if I drank this. And he pours it out as an offering to the Lord in recognition of what these three mighty men did. These things were done by the three mighty men. Abishai, we've seen him multiple times. The brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief in, among another three. He lifted a spear against 300 men and killed them. Won a name among these three. Was he not most honored of the three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Abishai was pretty bad in his day, but not as bad as the chief three. Benaniah was the son of Jehoiada, son of a valiant man from Kabziel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Well, there's a name. So if you hunt lions back in the day, you make a pit, put some sharp sticks in it, chase the lion into the pit. This lion was alive. It's pretty special because this guy just jumps down in. His footing is slippery. It's a snowy day, and he kills a lion. I've never done that and not going to jump anywhere near a lion. Thank you very much. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name among three mighty men. He was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. Goes through a whole list of other names of, of the rest of these 37 that are listed out for us. Uh, names to point out in verse 34, Eliam is one of David's mighty men, the son of Ahithophel. Eliam is Bathsheba's dad. So Bathsheba's dad was one of David's mighty men. And so was, very last verse there, Uriah the Hittite. David stole Uriah's wife had Uriah killed to cover it up, and we've sat in the consequences of all that. Worship team, come on up. Here's the main thrust that I want us to really press into out of these chapters. One, these are David's last words and all that he is to image to us, and I think he gives us a wonderful definition of what it means to be a man or a woman of God, that your life is a life of faith, your life is a life that's based upon his justness and his justice. You are a man or a woman who is filled with the Holy Spirit through faith in your Savior. You are a man and a woman who is intentionally seeking to keep God before you in awe of him and reverence of him and fear of him and all that you do. Fabulous foundation to describe a man or a woman of God. In this week, I have had, I, I jammed through a pretty long-winded podcast describing the failure of a specific congregation. And the failure is all attributed to an insecure man in alpha male. 
in my own life experience in growing as a man of God, over a decade ago, God really gave me the image of what, it, what my own insecurities look like and how male insecurities play out in life. When you look at a man who is defined as a bully, more, I get, more often than not, by far, the major characteristic of that individual's life is that he is an insecure boy in his core. A bully is going to assert himself physically because he doesn't have a security within. There's, there's an insecurity, there's an instability of that heart. When an insecure man is put into a position where there is dominion, an insecure man can be a brother, can be a husband, can be a pastor, can be your boss. Doesn't matter what that position looks like. When an insecure man is given power, the destruction of relationships that are left behind, they really are devastating. There are many people in our culture, in our day, who would point to a destructive, insecure man, what that man did in their life and say, I don't believe in God because of that insecure male. The power we have as individuals to influence another human being's life towards the Lord is awesome. And we are to do that in the fear of God. Recognize I am a created man. I am a man who has failed many times. I am a man who is going to fail many more times. But I am a man who is seeking to grow and mature in his definition of who I am to be and nobody else's. And that takes a tremendous amount of security. David said, the promises that God has given to me, they are secure. They are sure. Who I am and him, nobody can take away from me. I am secure in my relationship with the Lord. And because I am secure with him, that is what breaks me of the insecurities that I have in my flesh that could lead to consequences in my, my relationship with my bride or my kids or with you. It is only who God is and who Jesus Christ is that I put on this firm foundation. I am not this insecure man. I am not seeking to rule out of this position of insecurity. God, where I feel weak, where I don't feel confident, I'm asking that you would give me the hearts of these mighty men that we just read through. Even though the masses are running away from you and they're running because it's scary, it's not comfortable, there's anxiety, there's worry, there's all these other emotions that are feeding, in, feeding me in and trying to drive me down at particular path, um, Lord, root that out of my life. Prune out of me what doesn't belong there. I want to be the man that you have created me to be. I want to be the man that you have defined me to be. I want to be the best man to Julie that she needs because she deserves a good man. My kids deserve a good father. My mom deserves a good son. My father-in-law and mother-in-law deserve a good son-in-law. You deserve a good pastor. You deserve good elders. You deserve good brothers and sisters in Christ. 
We forgive each other when we break that image. David said, my household's not this way. My household's not just. My household's not living out the fear of God. But the promises in God that he has given to me, they are secure.